Hey everybody, hi, welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's just me this week. Um, it's just going to be a Jake episode again, just another one of these, you know, serial killer manifesto style solo operations. <laughs> so, um, which I'm excited for. Um, hopefully we have a nice time together, just you and me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, uh, this week I'm going to be talking to you about... Um, I'm a Raindrop, Get Me Out of Here by Spud Puppy Productions, um, and also Aphid's production of Class Act. Um, thanks for coming along. Um, let's let's have a funky time. <laughs> Hey, um, so yeah, still me. Yeah, thank you for making it past the intro music. That's a lot of faith you're putting in me. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, hey, I hope your hope whatever. Day, I hope your day that you're currently having is going just fantastically. Um, how was my week? Thank you for asking. Oh, first off, rude of you to ignore the fact that James isn't here. James isn't here. Um, I don't know what the rumor mill is speculating, but it's just him and his body just continuing to shut down. I don't know, like, it happens that frequently that, of course, I'm beginning to question, like, is this like when, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever been phased out of a friendship before, but not that I have necessarily, but the thing where it's like, you, <laughs> I've just had this happen to people peripherally to me and debatably to me as well, the thing where it's like, it seems to be this tactic. I don't. I didn't intend to be talking about this. Have you ever done this? D text in. The thing where you're trying to shake off a friendship, and so what you do is you schedule things. Like, you schedule one-on-one -on -one meetups with the person you're intending to sever ties from, and then you cancel last minute, and you just do it repeatedly enough so that eventually they get the hint that they don't actually want to see you through these, like, little acts of betrayal. <laughs> um... James might be doing that to me. Um, I don't know. I have nothing else on that thought, but that could be what's happening. But the story he's spinning towards me is the fact that he is shaking off this seemingly like chronic state of illness. It's always like a different type of sick, but it's just his immune system losing interest, I think. Um, so that's where he is. Uh, let's all send our prayers. But yeah, otherwise me. Um, <laughs> back to <laughs> back to me. Um, uh, so my week, my week has been fine. It's been dramatic, um, as every good week is. Uh, it's um, I I quit my job, which um, is big, just in the uh, in terms of uh, I guess what imagining one's life as a chronological beefy unedited memoir. That's the end of a substantial chapter. Um, just in the sense of like I had this casual job for like a decade, which is like 10 years, which is like longer than you go to high school for, unless you're really bad at English. Um, which saying that out loud sounds colonial, much like the Australian curriculum, but let's not waddle all over the place in terms of subject matter. I, yeah, I quit my job after just over 10 years working there, um, for like a bunch of reasons. Um, yeah, I can't get into the gossipy details of it just because that seems tacky and also would involve me giving you too much backstory and too many names of people that you'd have to fully invent. Um, but it's, yeah, it was like a, a, you know, a difficult workplace, but I, again, was there, was there for more than 10 years. I maintained the job while I was in Sydney for the time I was studying at NIDA. I would come back and do shifts there. Um, yeah, it was quite some time. It's where I met... Some, some of my favorite people in the world. Um, it's where I met a lot of my closest friends. Um, 
or some of my closest friends, many of my other friends, <laughs> not that I rank them, this isn't my space. Um, yeah, like that's that's where I happened upon Blonde Haley, and she's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, so yeah, that's where I met James, apart from, well, we met on Instagram initially. Um, <laughs> that's not even a story. We followed each other on Instagram before we met each other in real life, because we were both in our late teens. Um, and then we unfollowed each other at some point because I assume it's because he got uninteresting and he couldn't handle the ego blow of not following, not being followed by someone that he was following is my theory. We're yet to discuss it, but of course, you know, but he's in a hospital bed struggling to breathe. So we will probably never get to have the conversation about the truth. Um, but yeah, but then we actually had a, like, yeah, our friendship started because we both started working at this place at the same time. And yeah, it's, it's the place where I met two of my boyfriends, one of whom I was only with for just over a month, and the other one who is one of the best people I ever met and changed my life forever. So <laughs> this place was a it was a was a real setting. Um but yeah, but there are just some yeah, you know, there are some trash people <laughs> at the top of that company. Uh, not all of them, but some of them are cruel. <laughs> that was one of the several reasons that my time had come to 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 leave that workplace. Um, but yeah, but yeah, that's, that's that on that. Um, yeah. So I don't know. It, it sounds like I'm pausing because I'm lost in nostalgia, which I'm not. I'm just <laughs> debating whether or not it doesn't matter what I was debating. What else? What else? I'm sure that you're curious about my thoughts regarding the Dharma like a series that just came out on Netflix. First off, I do not have Netflix. Um, yes, that does make me interesting. Um, and secondly, no, I will not watch it because I cannot watch it because I don't know if I've bored you with this, but Jeffrey Dahmer just means a lot to me. He's just, I think, I, I have never said this belief out loud, but I do have this belief that there's almost like a serial killer out there for, for everybody, I think. <laughs> um, I'm not pro-murder, but... I am definitely you know, an advocate for it being a very fascinating human behavior. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know. And for me, and I can't get into the details because I'll be here ranting for too long, but the, just uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's upbringing and what he got up to, um, uh, he just, I don't know, he, I feel with, he and I have a lot of like, and I've said this to my father and he's very concerned um, and struggles to hide how much he's worried. But I, <laughs> I have a lot of, I, I feel like a weird sort of like, there's a familiarity in the upper like upbringing of Jeffrey Dahmer before he starts murdering people where I'm like, oh, we have like overlaps in like our childhoods and the things that we struggled with. Um, and so I think that's just like, it, it super just <laughs> enabled me to kind of like have an empathy for his, you know, early days and, uh, for that reason, kind of like a curiosity about his trajectory. Not that I was ever going to end up murdering and eventually attempting to zombify and chump upon people. Um, but, you know, you know those things that you just feel a kinship with that you don't <laughs> necessarily understand. And it's that lack of understanding that, you know, keeps us coming back. Um, yeah, no, so I can't watch it. I can't watch it for the same reason that I cannot watch the Holding the Man movie. It's why I can't see Holding the Man on stage. It's just because it's one of those things that means far too much. And I was trying to describe this 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 anxious, unshakable feeling to somebody the other day. Um, and the closest I could come to anything was like, 
it's almost like having like a really precious heirloom or something and you just don't want anyone to touch it, you know? And if someone comes over, regardless of who they are, if someone comes over to your house and picks it up, there's just this, this sinking terror in you of like, do not drop that. I swear to God, if you drop that, I will never be able to talk to you again. You know, <laughs> that type of thing. Um, so that's why I can't watch the Dharma thing. And it's also, of course, on top of my frustration surrounding Ryan Murphy, just commodifying as much of queer culture as he possibly can. Like, why is no one interrogating the, <laughs> the, you know, the, the demonic behavior of this man who is just like milking the cash cow of sellable gayness. It makes me so sad <laughs> and furious. And I don't know, that's... It, yeah, I don't know. It just makes me really mad. I don't know. But it's, it's certainly been uh, an excuse for me to continue to have, you know, those issues that bubble up in your mind that uh, oftentimes, you know, maybe I'm just pretending these things are general so I can talk about them. But I'm sure you have these things, like these, these social conversations that we keep having but never really solving or making much movement on. And... Uh, one of them being for me, like, of course, on top of like the Ryan Murphy monopolizing commodifiable gayness is, <laughs> which is something that makes me so angry. Um, it's lately just been making me think about the thing of like how um, people have this assumption that people like queer people or people that exist. Let's just stick to queer people, essentially, like anyone kind of under that LGBTQIA plus umbrella, this belief that a lot of people seem to have, many of whom in the community themselves, but this belief that anyone in that bracket, that bracket which confusingly has a plus sign on it, <laughs> kind of suggesting that it's only got one side of a pair of parentheses on it, but that bracket, this presumption that everyone wants to be incorporated into the mainstream, and that's kind of gross and boring to me. <laughs> Um, and it, it just, uh, yeah, I'm just stuck thinking about this, like not just because of the Ryan Murphyization of gayness, but, um, any, any, honestly, it's any time like a straight woman writes a best-selling book about gay men, um, or it's any time that like, even with like bros, there's like Billy Eichner gay rom-com coming out. It's like as thrilled as I am for all the people involved. <laughs> it's just like the, 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 the gay part of me, well, the, the me that is gay, I guess. Me, I'm describing me just clunkily. Um, no part of me, and I don't know if this was something formed by like trauma or anger or whatever caused this belief, but it's like, I've never strived for or romanticized the concept of being so embraced that my gayness is irrelevant, you know? Like I think, that that I'm I just think it's good. and I, I'm I think coolness is stupid but I'm gonna use the word of it just being like it's cool that there are things that separate us from the great mass you know and I think it's pretty lame for people to think on either side of the fence whether or not they're one of the outcasts or they're in in the great mass that we're imagining exists for the sake of this conversation um to believe that everyone just inherently wants to be part of the, the big group in the middle that's in charge of everything. Um, like, I think there's just something much cooler about embracing the idea of being on the fringes and being in the shadows and being kind of like dirty and sad, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I don't know, I, I think there's something too in like, I think my personal embrace of <laughs> like miserable, isolated sadness in my formative days 
and this is me speculating about things that I should be reflecting on in my own time. It's like, sure, maybe it was unhealthy to embrace them to the extent that I felt like I had to as a coping mechanism, but it's like, I'm not now going to get like into my life and be like <laughs> undoing that work in an effort to blend in with the general population. Um, certainly not because media is suggesting that I should be wanting to do that. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, this week, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it ten stars. Uh, one for each year that I spent in a job that I guess was in like many ways like the backdrop of my twenties. I suppose. Um, anyway, ugh. let's let's stop listening to me because because he sucks. Um, and uh, let's let's talk about some theater because theater is great. So I went to a a play. I saw a play. <laughs> I went to um, the Motley Bauhaus again in Carlton, which is a place that I seem to be ending up more and more lately. Which, which I'm open to. I I like it there. It's a really nice venue. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. It's 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 cool. Um, sorry, I was about to remind you that that's where I saw Stopover, but that's <laughs> irrelevant, I suppose. It's it's a venue irrespective of any New York-based Irish love stories. I went to the Motley Bauhaus to see um, I'm a raindrop, get me out of here. I'm a, it's, I'm a raindrop, get me out of here. Not out of, outer, like I'm out of love by Anastasia. <laughs> um, uh, and by the way, I just, if you're going to bring up Anastasia, which I apparently am, you need to talk about how good that Left Outside Alone song is. Um, if you need to pause this and put that on for a bit and then get back to me, that's understandable. But the, oh, my life I have waited. I I just think it's one of the best songs ever written. Um, anyway, um, I went to see a play. Uh, full disclosure, my friend Nicola is in it, um, was in it, uh, Nicola Pohl. She's really fantastic. Um, and yeah, so it's a children's show um, intended for children. I was, I'm going to, so in terms of what I went in knowing, all I knew was Nicola was in it, <laughs> Spud Puppy Productions produced it, <laughs> uh, and it, that's all I knew. And then beyond that, I assumed it was about rain because I am a genius. Um, because it was for children, I assumed they would be trying to teach us about rain. Uh, <laughs> and in terms of my expectation, I guess I was ready for an uncomfortable amount of audience interaction and participation. Um, I was ready to be surrounded by children. I was expecting a lot of like moments of like, okay, everyone. So now let's all work together and blow the gray cloud away. Um, which of course would have been horrifying. Uh, and yep, yeah, they were most of my expectations going in. Um, so I went with beautiful British Johnny. Uh, um, he turned up on a bicycle in a flurry because he abandoned soup to get to the theater on time. <laughs> soup he was cooking. He turned the stove off. I double checked um, through conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, and w while waiting for him outside, there, there was also this like, just like wonderful parade of people arriving to also see the show that I knew. Just like a really great, uh, you know, bunch of people. I just, yeah, so it was, it was it was nice to sort of like, yeah, witness this this gradual arrival of lovely people, many of whom are also pals with Nicola because she attracts a strong group, <laughs> quality wise. Um, I did not physically fight any of them. 
Um, but yeah, so we milled around, the doors open, we went inside. I went to the front with Johnny. Um, and then thankfully Georgie, sweet Georgie Potter, uh, joined us in the front with a number of other people. It was like, like pretty full in terms of a theater, in terms of a theater. It was pretty full in terms of whatever it is. It was a room with chairs in it. Most of them had a person in it. Um, yeah. So we were in the front row, Johnny on one side of me and then Georgie very welcomely on the other um, you may know Georgie because she uh, was, <laughs> you know how Robbie Williams performed at the grand final and everyone thought it was going to be Kylie Minogue, but it ended up being Delta Goodrum. And then they sang the Kylie Minogue, Robbie Williams kids duet just to rub it in. <laughs> um, well, they cut to Georgie cheering in the crowd when, when, during Robbie's performance, because she is a, uh, like a moderate Robbie Williams fan. Um, so yeah, she's on the, she was on the news. So I was really sitting next to a celebrity and beautiful British Johnny. And yeah, so as the, and the show is sort of like about to begin, it becomes very clear and welcomely clear that there are like zero children in the audience for this rain, <laughs> rain centric children's show, which is heaven. <laughs> First, like in concept and execution, it was just terrific to be sitting there ready to be taught about wet weather with a bunch of adult colleagues. I was really excited. <laughs> colleagues in the sense that we were all adults. We did not all work together. Um, yeah. And then, so then the show started um, and then out come Stephanie Baser, Tessa Marie Luminati and Nicola Pohl. Um, aforementioned Nicola Pohl and two strangers. And then these three women then go on to perform this show for us. <laughs> so um, where to start? Really good question, Jake. Uh, maybe you should have settled on this before we started talking. But alas, <laughs> um, so, what it, and what, so what it is, is that they play a raindrop each uh, and their pals. And it comes to be known uh, through storytelling that they are like, at, like raindrops... At the start of, not of time, but, but of like back when the dinosaurs existed. Because the thing that I guess I've never really, like haven't really reflected upon is like all the rain that exists, like all the water that is here is the same water. Like unless I'm stupid or I misunderstood a lesson that was taught or like, I don't know, all these raindrops lied to me. It's the same water that's been here the entire time. Like ever since water started being water, we've only got the same water. You know, like if you put a bunch of, if you put a lake in a rocket and then sent that rocket away, water wouldn't replace that water. We've got all the water that we're going to have. Can I say water again? Yes. <laughs> uh, so th that was a cool thing that hit me early on. So they're, they're playing raindrops around the time of the dinosaurs, um, which does eventuate in the three of them embodying a dinosaur that th that sings Mr. Cellophane from Chicago. Um, which stop shouting that it's not one of the strongest songs in the show. You only think that because it has not been performed adequately for you. And I think John C. Riley did pretty good. Um, it's a really good song. You just have to be in the mood for it, I think. I think you need to just like grow into it. I think I, I would put it in a similar a similar circle of songs as There Are Worse Things I Could Do from Greece. I think you need it to be performed well, as Stockard Channing, of course, does. Um, but you also need to have, like, gone through the correct things or at least be in the right mood to experience it, you know? I understand why... I mean, this is me speaking for me and then projecting onto the concept of others. But <laughs> but you're watching Chicago, potentially, like, you know, watching Chicago for the first time. If, if you're experiencing all of that, if you're going through all that jazz and you're going through Cell Block Tango and you're going through, like, Roxy, getting to Mr. Cellophane, of course, is going to feel like a screeching halt and very unwelcome. You're feeling like you're feeling like Queen Latifah. You don't want to sit through John C. Riley shaking his sweaty hands at you. I understand. But it's a really beautiful song. Um, yeah, so, um, so these performers are really, really fantastic. And like, in the sense of, like, I, I would have... 
that's a different thing I'll get into later. No, I'll get into it now. <laughs> but like imagining, I didn't imagine this very hard, but imagining being a child at this show. Um, I would like to think that I'd be the type of child that would really, really enjoy this show. I don't know. I hope a lot of kids went to it because yeah, I don't know. Our, our show was well-sold and full of adults. I hope there were a lot of really well-sold child-filled performances of this show because yeah, they'd be lucky kids to get to experience what, what these performers gave to them because, oh my God, I think <laughs> the thing that kept buffeting me over and over was just the, the, I don't know, the, the crisp, elegant, wonderful, like potent confidence with which they delivered this very like sweet, charming, odd tale about being rain. And it's the sort of thing which, which, you know, which, which is the case for anything that requires any level of like a suspension of disbelief. It requires everyone on stage to uh, exist in the same atmosphere as each other. Um, and it requires the audience to not puncture that atmosphere. Uh, and, and for these three, these three people to perform a show intended for children in front of a bunch of adults, many of whom they knew, I suppose, um, to be able to be the three of them, to be such a strong ensemble together, to trust each other so obviously, and to enjoy each other so much, and to tell this story that was intended to educate about moisture. <laughs> Uh, it was just remarkable to watch because there was never a moment where it seemed like any of them were like, oh God, this is lame. God, I'm embarrassed. Not that they should have been. It was just like, that. that's where a weaker performer could have gone to have even like, if they had expressed even like a, like a monicum of self-consciousness while doing this absurd activity, like a theater in itself is a little absurd, but to be performing a kid's show about rain to a bunch of grownups, um, uh, it was just, <laughs> it was magical to see them nail it so thoroughly. Uh, it was, it was really really, really something. I have to say like Stephanie Beyser, especially delivered one of like the funniest performances that I've ever seen. Like she was just remarkable. <laughs> um, a standout moment for her. Um, and I think my chuckling made it obvious how much I was enjoying it, but she played this character whose name I think was like, <laughs> I, it was something like Mr. Moneybags. I don't know. What I don't know what the name was. It could have been that, but she played him as a, he was kind of like meant to represent <laughs> some version of capitalism and like someone like running a sweatshop in maybe London. <laughs> it was just this like hunchbacked, like, I don't know, miserly, like, I don't know, monopoly man. I was just telling these children to continue working harder. And it was, I, I don't know, I think she should get a helpman for it. I think it was just some of the most solid comedy and character work that I've seen in quite some time. <laughs> um, yeah, I liked that. I think, uh, what else even happened? Um, there was, uh, we got to travel kind of through time and throughout the world, <laughs> as rain does. In many ways, we should envy the rain. Uh, <laughs> uh, they went to France, or at least one of them went to France. They get separated. They start off in the cloud together and then through like weather and whatnot, they go to like various places. Like using rain as a device to travel through a lot of different places is really quite clever. Uh, and yeah, so they end up, um, one of them ends up in France and some French umbrella dwelling raindrops. Um, teach teach one of the raindrops about what acid rain is uh which which I, was was good to get some clarity on <laughs> so that was fun we got a lot of different ethnicities throughout the piece uh, which was done i think arguably tastefully i think it was good when we ended up in the stomach at one point there was an italian meatball looking for an italian string of spaghetti uh that was also great <laughs> i love an accent i love an accent uh let it be known <laughs> um what else happened 
we wound up at a at a Scott Morrison like characters press conference, and one of the raindrops was one of his sweat droplets. Um, was something that also occurred. Like again, I think if you're in the mood to do it, I think take this idea and maybe make a gritty reboot of this premise because you can cover a lot of ground if you're just following the the wetness between scenes. You know, I may have just given you the cheat code to solve that episodic play that you're struggling to write. Um, so you're welcome. Um, and then through even just like, so, uh, we, we ended up, and I've, since seeing it, I have tried to go back and retrace the steps of the plot, but the way that it meandered so wonderfully, it makes it difficult sometimes to, re- to retrace the steps we went on, but we ended up as an audience experiencing being sung to twice this song um, <laughs> about listening to your heart and listening to your head and not just doing stupid things because that's what your friend said, um, is a, is a paraphrase of some of the excellent lyrics. I'm truly very into this song. Me and Johnny both woke up the next day and were like, we need to remember the words to that song because the tune was in our heads. Most of the words were in our heads, but it was like, Johnny was like, I will die if I do not <laughs> work out precisely what these words are because it was spinning in our heads without without the words. So I contacted Nicola and we solved it and neither of us had to resort to suicide because that's where it would have pushed us. But yeah, ended up having a, yeah, it was a really solid, solid message. Not that, not that it needed one, but a solid message about, you know, having integrity uh, and, and, and sorting things out for yourself. Um, which, which I think is a valuable thing to be teaching children. Yeah. I would love to speak to a child that saw this show. Um, just cause I like feeling powerful and cowering over short people. And additionally, because I'd love to know what of this, um, sticks with a child or hits a child in an interesting way. Because, um, since seeing it, I've just been thinking a little bit, like one of the things that made me think about beyond just the, the how impressive these performers were, uh, I, which is a thing I keep coming back to. I can't believe it. <laughs> ah, I, um, I was thinking about, did I see much like educational theater when I was a child? Um, like a child child? Like I remember those like Shakespeare people coming to high school and, and you know, nailing Macbeth. But uh, I, yeah, don't necessarily recall. Like I feel like I went to a number of puppet shows. Um, <laughs> maybe they didn't think I was smart enough for a people show. I, yeah, but I wonder. But not that everything, and this is another thing that I keep having to think about now for the last week. It's like, it's not as if you need to remember the things. Just because you can't remember something doesn't mean it hasn't affected you. Um, (laughs) This is me discovering what trauma is. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but yeah, it just has just made me think about the value of experiencing things like Disneyland as a pre-memory forming child. Yeah. but thinking about theater in those terms um, because yeah, because I think shows like this would be a positive influence on them, whether or not they retain anything about the, you know, the, the water cycle, which was fun to revisit. I remember getting really lost in a, in a water, in a water assignment I had to do in like year three. Um, because yeah, if you get me to hyperfixate on something, I can churn out a pretty captivating thick document about, about nonsense, especially if I'm, if I'm 11, so. <laughs> um, should also say that like the lighting and the tech and like the way that the show looked and felt matched really well with, with, a, with, with you know, one of those like childish aesthetics, childish in the sense of like, would stimulate a child and keep them in the world in an engaged way. But also from what I will say is an adult brain that I have, I have an adult brain. Um, it, it, it melded nicely with kind of like 
the rugged aesthetic of the, the Motley Bauhaus. Like it was, I don't know, it, it, I don't know. It was it, in that way, kind of like <laughs> it appealed to my grungier sensibilities as well, which, which I, you know, I, I privately appreciated. So um, Patrick Hill really, really, really nailed it with the, with the, with the lighting design. <laughs> um, so yeah, water, <laughs> water, it's everywhere. <laughs> Hi there. Um, I went to the substation. Let's just get right into it. I went to the substation, which is in Newport, which is 100% a suburb, I promise. <laughs> um, handily, it's right next to the train station. So if you ever have to go there, there's a direct way to get you there. I assume that no one else can drive. Um, I assume no one can drive. Just like me, I can't drive. <laughs> and I shouldn't. Stop trying to pressure me. Um... Yeah, so I went to see, so Aphids, they, they they put on a show called Class Act at the substation. Um, full disclosure, my friend, one of my favorite people, um, Anna, she is the executive producer of of Aphids and and had a heavy hand in producing this show. So if, if that colors what I say, um, stone me to death <laughs> in the town square, but I don't think it will. It, this, this, this was a wonderful production and I'm sure I'd feel that way if everyone were full-blown strangers. Um, the show itself was led by Mish Gregor, which was one of the two performers in the show and directed by Zoe Dawson. Um, and yeah, and a- aphids themselves, uh, they, they say that they're a theater company making urgent art in urgent times. Um, <laughs> just letting you know. Uh, yeah, so upon booking the ticket, let me take you back to booking the ticket to this show. Um, there were two options of ticket. One of them was just like regular, you know, a ticket. You've bought one of them before. Uh, and then there was like a, like a, like a, like another section of ticket. Uh, I can't remember how they described it, but it was like a, like an elevated version of things that included like a high T is what they said. Uh, and then we turned up, um, uh, got to the substation. I met Harry there. Harry's great. Harry's, <laughs> Harry's so strange and I adore him. He's fantastic. And then he, um, he, he, his plan when I was approaching the substation, I hadn't seen him yet. His plan was to jump out and scare me from the bushes. I would like it on the record that I think that's a horrific thing to do to a person. And if you think fear is fun, uh, you are essentially Ellen DeGeneres, which is one of the lowest things you can be in today's climate. I, so yeah, we, we met up, we went inside, we toddled around the gallery for a while because there's all like, I don't know if you've been to the substation, but there's like a lot of art there. I was once part of a performance art piece at the substation. Adele Varco was uh, the creator of it. Uh, she's done a, a fair bit of work in this style. It was, oh, have I forgotten what it's called? I think so. Um, but essentially it was just like a bunch of us were put in this gallery and the gallery was a functioning gallery space. But on top of that, we were also there and it was our job as part of this art piece to engage people in different types of eye contact sort of secretly and just kind of like see what a, like a, a response that evoked in people. Um, and my job was to be the more sort of like, like subtle, lingery flirty eye contacty one and it was a really great time it's it's uh, yeah it's a subject matter and a style of art that i'm keen on um i'd say which may come as a surprise because i do not like to participate but maybe i'm when on maybe when i'm on the other side of things i'm just a red hot hypocrite i don't know I don't know what it is, but it was a really good time. Um, and she's a really cool artist. Anyway, so yeah, we were at the substation um, just being humans. So really we were just doing the, the, the more conventionally embraced style of performance that is having our personalities um, 
in public and write an essay about that in 2009. I, um, we, we walked around um, and then eventually the show started. We started filing into the performance space, which was just like such, such a beautiful space. Like you go up in the substation, just in like the foyer, there's all these like suspended theater lights and these beautiful like red velvet curtains. And then you go up this staircase that seems like it's like out of the good fight. And then you go in and then, yeah, we went into this performance space. I don't know how many they have, but we went into one, went past Anna looking like resplendent in this like white outfit. Oh my God, she looks so glamorous. And then we, yeah, went inside and then Dominic and Ava, two of my favorite people in the world, were sitting like in the front row. So they flagged us down. Then we sat in the front row with them. And so now what then became clear on top of just like, us now seeing the performance space, kind of like very high ceilings, concrete walls, that is the building, that is just architecture. And then on top of that, the, the design of the piece itself was taking place kind of on like a risen circular white platform encircled by two like swish aroundable sheer curtains suspended from the very high ceiling, which was yeah, obviously really beautiful. Um, and, but yeah, so went over and sat. So me and Harry sat with Ava and Dominic and then we proceeded to, again. so then what became obvious was like the high T people that purchased the slightly more expensive ticket were sort of like around the, kind of in front of us in the front row. And they were kind of like in this semicircle at cabaret tables, quite close to the performance space. And they were like eating hors d'oeuvres and drinking wine. Um, and for, for reasons that will become clear and probably to some extent are already clear to you. But yeah, so the, the, the piece itself then starts and then Mish comes out and she kind of like then proceeds to explain to us that this is kind of going to be, it's like like a retelling of My Fair Lady, but what it then proceeds to kind of be is a, it's almost her telling us the story of My Fair Lady, extracting elements from it, and then also using it kind of as a jumping off point to explore her experience of class in her life and in the, the current day. And uh, it was, it was a part of what I personally great about it for me is like class is certainly a thing that by virtue of being involved in the arts, I am forced to think about quite often. And also it just being like us being at this societal point of where it really feels like we're about to start storming the Bastille. I think the queen's death is certainly going to help inflame some of these motivations, but yeah, that's the thing that I'm feeling ready for. Don't know about you. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah. So for that reason, it was like very much a thing that I was in the mood to go through theatrically as an audience member. So that was cool. Um, yeah, um, but then it started, and then so it's Mish and um, Alice. So Alice Dixon is the other one in the show with her. Um, and then they're both really, really strong, wonderful performers, and Alice especially shone in all of the physical stuff that she was made to do. Like it was, I was, I was, uh, I don't know, talking in the foyer afterwards um, about, the, you know, you know when you see those people, because nothing, like very little of what Alice did physically was, strictly speaking, dance, which I think I'm not qualified to define. Um, but she... Uh, there was a part where she was, let's just jump around for a second. There was a part where she was essentially kind of like behaving like she was a horse. Like there was this portion where they were, they were talking about a fancy British race track, a race that happens, I believe in London. I think it's like a, like a British race <laughs> between horses. It's a race war. It's a, a horse race. I don't know why I can't say these words. My father loves horse races. Um, and I was raised around a lot of them. Um, not in a fancy way, in a gambling way, um, and not in a dark way. Uh, quack, quack. We, so Alice embodied this horse 
Um, and then it was just immaculately done. And to continue jumping around when I was talking about it in the foyer afterwards, it was just like, it's that thing. I was like, you know, when that, that moment where you see that a person is, whether or not they're a dancer, they're a person that knows how to make their body move beautifully. Like it's almost that thing where there's something about the elegance of their movement that just makes it feel kind of, I don't know, it reaches that transcendent moment. Like, you know, that thing of, I don't know if it's in art as therapy, that Elaine de Baton book or or it was just like some study that uh, I read or something, but it's like that idea that if something's beautiful, like especially if it's a piece of art, it activates the, th- like the, the part of your brain that activates during meditation. Like that, and for that to be the definition of beauty is like the idea that if something's beautiful, it will send you into that meditative space. And for some reason it made me think that like watching Alice move, it was like her movements were the type of beautiful that activated that type of thing in my mind that really made, at least that's the, the moment that, as I'm sure you've had too, that moment that clicks where it's like, oh, that person moves their body in a way that is really quite stunning. Um, so Alice did that. And then, yeah, so to sort of like start talking about classism, which is kind of, which is very much a thing that this show was revolving around and interrogating. Uh, so that, and and it, and this part wasn't super texty. So I don't know if, uh, uh, it, it's boring sometimes to, to guess at the intention of an artist when, when perceiving and discussing their art. So let's not do that. But the journey that I was taken on by this piece, um, and I know that at least Harry had a very different experience of this piece, but it's not my job to speak for Harry. I'll speak for me. I, I, um, yeah, so, so it went from her embodying this, bo- this, this horse, uh, that has just run a race. And then we sort of like see the horse kind of like elegantly maybe achieve victory, um, and then just sort of like trot around for a while. And then Mish then comes to, after Alice does it really, really beautifully, Mish then comes and kind of like fails and struggles to emulate the elegance and beauty of this horse ballet. And then it was interesting then to kind of like watch it go from being what started off feeling like it was a piece about horse racing being one of those things that is intended for the elite, I suppose. Um, Like of the sports, if you were to rank them, anything with a horse in it tends to rank pretty high. (laughs) Um, And then it it was interesting for them to then kind of like manage to kind of like you know, walk sideways into then making it a piece kind of about ballet that, I don't know, like, ballet is almost the horse racing of the art world. I don't know, like the way that ballet is all, you know, discipline and elegance and beauty and and refined um, and expensive. Um, yeah, and, and to watch Mish struggle to emulate balletic movement and then, I don't know, be put down like a, like a, like a shitty horse <laughs> was, was just a cool thing to witness on stage. And especially, yeah, I don't know, sitting in this piece, it was a cool thing to reflect upon. Like elitism, even in the arts, um, was something that got explicitly and, you know, artistically talked about, um, which I appreciated. Uh, yeah. There is this point in My Fair Lady where, uh, Mish described it to us. Um, I have not seen, I, 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 I count myself as having watched My Fair Lady without having, but only in the sense that like I put it on, didn't really like it. And then just kind of like fast forwarded through it to see if there was anything cool that Audrey Hepburn did. So I've like seen grabs of it and I know what it's about. Um, and I've seen the Simpsons episode where they make over Willie the groundskeeper um, in a similar fashion, which I'll admit doesn't count as having seen My Fair Lady, but I'll keep telling people that I have. But um, they, <laughs> there are some good songs in that episode. Um, wouldn't it be adequate being a standout? Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, what was I about to say? Yeah, there, there was, oh, so there's a scene in My Fair Lady, um, that Mish described about, um, Audrey Hepburn's, like, 
poor garbage Eliza character being brought into this fancy house and the maids take her and clean her. And apparently throughout this scene, which I fast forwarded past, (laughs) Audrey gets like scrubbed clean and spends the whole thing kind of like howling in agony. And Mish kind of replicated this sound um, while she was kind of like being undressed and symbolically washed she was yeah, kind of howling into this microphone and it was just one of those times where you experience one of those human vocalizations that somehow just seems to almost vibrationally make it into your emotional center. And so that was upsetting. There were a couple of times where I felt very like emotional feeling, <laughs> very emotional feelings. Yeah, he's a writer. He says amazing sentences like that. <laughs> um, there was a couple of times where I, yeah, it, 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 things got hit upon inside of me that... Um, were mighty unpleasant. And it was part of what made the show so impressive in terms of my experience of it was having those things be accessed. Um, especially not necessarily via text, um, largely. Um, yeah, that was upsetting. A- another notable time was there was a... They were, they were describing... I wasn't going to talk about this so soon because I, 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 I worry I'll get lost in it and just ramble for too long. So I'll keep this consciously short. Um... There was a that would Mish was telling the like the true well the purportedly true story, um, of of her formal and of going like being driven to formal like with her friends by her father in his police car, um, and them pressuring him to turn the siren on, um, and the sirens came on and then people because of like the socioeconomic like nature of the neighborhood they were in. It made a lot of people very anxious and things got a bit disastrous. Um, and she kind of, yeah, walked us through kind of like that experience of, and obviously with it comes all like the, the elitist bells and whistles of events like for like formals and dressing fancy um, and, and these big opulent events that are, you know, as I, as I've sort of like long felt about these things as someone that did a deb ball, as someone that went to three formals, like, I don't know, there's something that to this day just really, I don't know, just really nauseates me about anyone attempting to be fancy is just so low and gross. I just, it just like angers and frustrates me so much. And I don't know why people don't find it embarrassing. And I don't, because I don't know, one of the things, it just really feels like a leftover thing from like, I don't know, the Regency era. I don't get, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But yeah, she tells this story and then a device that to this point has kind of been established unclearly, which was exciting to me. Like it was fun. I, and I'm, yeah, I'm sure you like, you find this too. It's like, it's fun to work out what these devices mean. Um, and it's hard to explain what I'm talking about unless I give you this example. And it was like throughout the show now, and then there'd be this, like, like this kind of like angry honk that would kind of sing, signal, like almost one of those, you know, in like, I believe it's, is it the X Factor or Australia's Got Talent? It's one of those shows where it's like, if they don't like what you're doing, they hit a buzzer and a big red X comes up. It was almost like that happened at different points throughout the show. And it's unclear as to what it means. And it's not even explicitly said at any point, but what it seems to mean and uh, at least I decided it meant by the time this story started getting told is like any time that someone started saying something about poorness, <laughs> like any time someone was telling a story and something came up that made it seem as if the person telling the story was representing or advocating for the behavior of the poor, this <laughs> like Australia's Got Talent Elimination X would come up and the person would have to sort of like re-navigate themselves. And as her story continued and it continued, just any story about like someone in high school being sad and I don't know, 
anxious about judgment or something or like oh my god makes me so upset and then i don't know and especially like you know one of those like teenage high stakes events like a formal um that you only you know might only just get one of if that it's like and then watching this this formal experience not go well and i don't know maybe be embarrassing and and oh, th- so that story in itself devastating to me um but then on top of that adding oh god the music in this show and i'm not a music person in terms of like soundtracky theater stuff like it doesn't it's not a thing that i like look for or i don't know it's not often that i'm really like taken by it it's like i don't know a lot of the times for me it's like it was there and was adequate but this like it just elevated so many of the moments and this was one of the really like incredible examples of it was this story just sort of kept spinning and spinning and developing and it started getting drowned out by these like don't be poor sirens um and and then this like sort of like t- I, I don't know music words but almost it's like this like tense synthy angry music was also kind of like fueling this cyclone that was happening it just it's like, like i don't know like traumatic nostalgic poverty shame spiral and it was overwhelming for jake <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad it finished when it did because i couldn't have taken much more of it oh my god and just yeah and just let's just get hung up on the things that make me really distressed anytime there's anyone <laughs> i'm just I, I it makes me so sad and anxious and i i think this was a thing instilled in me by my mother or something um i don't know but i just anytime Someone is just like, like people being kept from happiness, and I don't mean like, like big funky like material happiness, like just like something that would just make them like a little bit happy, or like a little bit comfortable or something. And the the barrier between that thing, like them having that thing or not, being money, like somehow I think like especially a small amount of money, just makes me so sad. <laughs> um. And there, there were just like a lot of stories that that like there was oh my god Mish told this story where they went to uh, like in her childhood for Christmas they went to Wet and Wild and they couldn't pay the tax net like the the tax you had to pay to bring your bags in <laughs> it was just and it was also Christmas which makes me so sad for a number of reasons and one of like her brother's girlfriends no one got her a gift but she brought everyone gifts like these are the things that just ruin Jake's day stories like this. <laughs> just make me want to die um but yeah so the, the, those those were just you know, moments that that ripped my face off um uh one of the most sort of like as was made obvious by conversations i was having afterwards as well with people one of the most resonant moments was towards the end uh mish tells this story about this conversation that she had um about someone questioning why she would choose a life in the arts um uh because that's essentially choosing to be poor <laughs> Um, uh, and that's, that's how the question gets posed. Like, why would you choose to be poor? And that (laughs) for anyone who has made that choice, (laughs) um, um, like me among them, uh, it's was, uh, it it was, it it was a very familiar conversation to be having because you have to have it over and over again with people, um, in different ways, uh, (laughs) And uh, I'm sure there's every chance that you've had that too, depending on, you know, the choices you've made. <laughs> uh, and so it was, it was cool to see it on a stage. Um, but it was, and you know, and I don't know. And, and so, but it was more than it just being like, oh, there's that thing that hurts me every time it comes up, put in front of me. Because obviously that's already a thing that you're interrogating constantly because, you know, because if you stop making your art, no one cares, you know? 
um, is something. So you, you're forced to face this question all the time. Like, why would you choose to keep making art, especially if that art as happy as it can make you, like it often makes you miserable in so many ways, but the way that this show functioned and the trajectory of the thoughts that it sort of like evoked in you. And, um, of course you can never know what an audience is thinking, but I think it's reasonable to assume that like a lot of people, if, if on, on their journey through experiencing this work, like that conversation that Mish described, the very familiar conversation happened at a point in the show where you get to a point, I think where one can logically kind of piece together all the ideas that you've been put forth, like given, they've given you all these ideas in a row. And then it was interesting, I think, and maybe this is me assuming too many things, but I think the way that they told the story, it was cool because it repurposed that conversation or at least reframed that conversation about artists choosing poverty when they choose artistry um, and got you to a point where you kind of, I don't know, it, it doesn't make the argument for, why am I refusing to just finish this sentence? <laughs> it, it, the show gets you to a point where it enables you to be like, yeah, like in the current situation, the way that the, the world currently functions, um, artists are poor, like most of them, the vast majority of them are poor, but it's like, why? Like, But that's also a symptom of a problem. And that problem is that society doesn't value artists in the correct ways. Um, you know, like, of course there are a lot of artists that are, that are on tremendous platforms and have a lot of money. Um, but the, the, the number of successful artists does not adequately reflect the value, the, the, the value we place upon art in the sense that like, you know, that, the, that conversation that got very tedious during COVID of like, oh, the, everyone's just at home watching movies and Netflix and stuff. Um, but, the, uh, but, but you're not going to fund the arts with JobKeeper and whatnot. You know, it's like, it's, it's that, like, that's still very much a real issue. Um, uh, but yeah, let's not get stuck on me hating classism. Let, <laughs> I'll, we'll just briefly touch on like, they used repetition in a cool way. The thing about repetition, I think like in this, there, there was a number of times, it happened a number of times, one example being, Mish jumping back and forth, saying one sentence over and over again. And she seemed to be doing it up until the point of exhaustion. Um, and the thing for me, at least with repetition and this style of repetition, um, I, every time I encounter it, I have caught like kind of irrespective of who is doing it and what they are doing. I have to get through that threshold of like, my God, I'm bored. I'm frustrated with this <laughs> and I'm over it. <laughs> um, and I, that's just a thing inside of me. And I understand too, that that is potentially part of what the artist wants me to go through, but I, my, I just don't enjoy that type of boredom. But what happens every single time someone does something like this and my brain forgets that this is the outcome every single time, but you get past the threshold of boredom and then you get to the part of almost like meditation. And then you can also manage to get to the point of like reflection. Um, and it's almost a thing of like, uh, people are inherently interesting enough. And, you know, I, I think, I, I, don't, I think I would like very bravely say that you could kind of get any person to repeat anything over and over again. And eventually you'd get somewhere fascinating in your own mind. Um, yeah, if you can find a way to make that a more succinct sentence, you should put it on a poster perhaps. <laughs> but that's that, that, that's the thing that reflecting on this show made me think about. I guess a, a major thing that like stuck out and uh, I don't know, kind of like, was a gong that reverberated throughout a lot of the show was like the sense of like hyper consumption and the way that the, obviously that conversation about the, the, the media trying to instill this sense of like, we need to constantly be buying things. And 
you know, replacing our wardrobes and yeah. And it just, yeah, it was, I don't know, reignited in me that, that, you know, important sort of capitalistic question of like, are we consuming in the pursuit of something or are we consuming in an attempt to soothe something? Um, and yeah, I don't know that, that that's been a thought in my noggin since, since seeing class act, um, maybe it can be one in yours for a while. Cause I think it's an interesting question. Yeah. You lovely fuckface. That's sorry to call you that. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for listening to this entire thing. Thank you for spending so much time with me. That's super lovely of you. Um, yeah, so that's that's this week. I'll let you know. Um, we are not that this was ever going to be a secret, but I, I I'm going to give you the privileged information of. So like the Melbourne Fringe Festival is about to start, um, and me and James have kind of taken it upon ourselves to make sure that we see like lots and lots and lots of stuff, um, like a bunch of it. Um, that's that's at least our plan. Um, we'll see what actually comes to fruition, but that's absolutely our plan is to just see so many shows. Um, because we're excited and we're excited to talk to you about them. Um, so what, what's going to kind of happen? Well, like we're still sort of working out how this is going to work, but we're going to see heaps of them. We're going to talk about them as usual, of course. Um, uh, and then but it'll likely mean a lot more output from us. It might mean that you're getting like a, like a, bun- like a few more episodes than expected, um, at a, like a more rapid pace, um, I hope this isn't setting us up to be disappointing, but that's, that's the current plan is to kind of, you know, to, to spread ourselves real thin <laughs> and, and uh, I, I don't know. And just like soak up as much of this festival as we can. I do not like using myself metaphorically as a sponge, but we're going to soak up gross as much as we can of the Melbourne fringe and, and share our experience with you as much as we can. Um, let us know if you're doing something for Fringe and you want us there. Um, that'd be a super cute invitation. And um, we're still pe- like piecing our schedules together. So if we can fit it in, uh, we'd love to be there. Um, but yeah, so yeah. So hopefully, yeah, whatever this Fringe journey ends up being, please come along with us. Um, and hopefully we have a cool, likely stressful, but certainly exciting, engaging, fulfilling time out in the in the streets of Melbourne. Ah, <laughs> uh, what an annoying voice. Um, and anyway, yeah. Um, Again, thank you for coming along with me on this solo adventure. Um, thank you for being here. Um, I may already disagree with everything I just said. And a friendly reminder that friends don't let friends become theater critics. Um, I've been Jake. I will likely continue to be. Um, and yeah, I'm gonna shut I'm gonna shut the fuck up now. <laughs> I'm the fuckface. <laughs> and I'll yeah, speak to you super soon.